We turn in Scripture to two passages this evening. First, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. And then second, we turn again to John chapter 13, which we began looking at last Sunday evening. Philippians 2, we read verses 1 through 11. And we will be interacting with this passage as well as John 13, looking back and forth between the two passages. So it might be profitable to keep a bookmark at Philippians chapter 2. Let's read the first 11 verses. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit... If any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is especially why we're reading this passage. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then John chapter 13. And we read the first 17 verses. The text will be verses 12 through 17 which we will not reread. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, or supper being served, The devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, And began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, 
dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. Now the words of the text. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last week, Sunday evening, we looked at the first half of this passage, the first half of this event of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And what we especially looked at was how in this foot washing, Jesus was uh, giving us uh, a, a, a picture. He was pointing ahead to the washing away of our sins on the cross. That's That comes out in his interaction with Peter. In verse 8, Jesus says to Peter, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And remember how we explained that last week. With these words, Jesus was saying, Peter, if you don't have a share in this small humiliation that I experience for you now in washing your feet, this merely external act, If you are not a partaker of this small humiliation now, and if you will not humble yourself to let me wash your dirty feet now, then how can you have a share in my much greater humiliation when I am suffering and dying on the cross in these next 24 hours? And last week when we applied this reality to ourselves, we said, That we need to recognize that being a Christian doesn't begin with me being a servant of Jesus. Rather, being a Christian is recognizing that Jesus has first become our servant in order to wash away our sins. And that is the humbling thing. That puts us in our proper place as needy, helpless sinners. In need of a Savior who so humbles himself as to wash away our sins on the cross. Well, this afternoon we come to the second half of this event. And this afternoon we want to see how Jesus' act of 
Washing the disciples' feet is not just a symbolic act, a, a picture of the washing away of sins, but it's also an exemplary act. And what I mean by that is this, Jesus' foot washing not only points to His work on the cross, but it's also given as an example for us to imitate in our relationships with one another. Just as Jesus has become our servant, so Jesus exhorts us to be servants of one another. And just as Jesus has washed our feet and much, much more, so Jesus exhorts us to wash one another's feet. Getting on our knees, washing each other's feet, that's what it looks like to be Jesus' disciple. Are you the disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, ask yourself, are you reflecting the heart of Jesus? Jesus' heart is a heart of a servant. Are our hearts hearts that reflect Jesus? If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. We take as our theme this evening, the heart of a servant, part two. And we look at that theme under three points. First, we look at the perfect example looking at Jesus' foot washing now as an example. Second, the lowly calling, applying that to us. And then third, the rich blessing. Last week, we did spend a fair bit of time looking at this whole event of Jesus washing His disciples' feet and how it took place. We saw how when Jesus' disciples entered the upper room, there was no servant there to wash their dirty feet. We also saw how Jesus' disciples must have been bickering about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in that context, no one was willing to take up the job of washing the feet of the other disciples. We also saw then how Jesus got up off his couch and took the wash basin and filled it with water and went around the room washing his disciples' feet. And then we especially looked at that conversation that took place between Jesus and Peter. And I think the challenge this evening is to avoid repeating what we already said last week and now to try to look at this event from a slightly different point of view. And I think we can do that when we look at this event from this perspective. Jesus' act of washing his disciples' feet is really a picture of Jesus' entire earthly ministry it was really a, a picture of what Jesus' entire earthly ministry was about. Maybe I can put it this way. Jesus' act of washing his disciples' feet is a small dramatization, if we can use that word, a small dramatization of the entirety of Jesus' work on the earth. This activity of Jesus getting down from his couch at the head of the table in the upper room, taking off his garments, taking upon himself the form of a servant, and getting down on his knees to wash his disciples' feet. And then afterwards, getting back up again from his knees and taking his place once again at the head of the table. When you put it all together, it's a small reflection of the totality of Jesus' entire pathway through life. Now, in order to show you what I mean, I think it's helpful for us to consider what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 and compare Paul's description of Jesus' entire ministry in Philippians 2, with this foot washing that takes place here in John 13. 
And I think when we do that, comparing Philippians 2 with John 13, then we can see very striking parallels between Jesus' foot washing and his entire life. And if we follow the sequence of events that take place here in John 13, I think we can point out five distinct steps in which this act of Jesus' foot washing corresponds to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. So first, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, what was the first thing Jesus did? Well, Jesus rose from his seat at the head of the table. That's the very beginning of John 13, verse 4. He riseth from supper. And specifically, how did Jesus rise from his seat? Well, verse 3 explains. Verse 3, it says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand, And that he was come from God and went to God with exactly that knowledge, fully aware of who he was as God, as the glorious king of all creation, Jesus rose from his couch in the upper room. Now, what does the Apostle Paul write in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6? In Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul expresses the exact same idea, but in a different setting. In Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In Philippians 2, Paul writes that before Jesus had come down from heaven to the earth, he was fully aware of who he was as God. He knew all things, that he was God, and that it was not robbery to be equal with God. He knew he was fully God as the second person of the Trinity. But, you might say, knowing who he was as God, nevertheless, he arose from his throne in glory in order to descend into this world. So Jesus' act from rising from supper can be compared to Jesus' act of rising from his throne in glory to descend into this world in his incarnation. In the second step of Jesus' foot washing, what did Jesus do? Well, we read in John 13, verse 4, that Jesus riseth from supper and laid aside his garments. He took off his garments. And you children might remember how we described that in last week's sermon. How it was as if Jesus took off his suit jacket, he took off his tie, he unbuttoned his dress shirt, took that off, took off his dress shoes, even maybe took off his dress pants. What garments did Jesus take off? Well, I think I did mention it last week. Remember, Jesus had that special tunic, that outer garment, that outer garment that was so beautiful and precious that when he was crucified, the soldiers cast lots for it, who might have it, so that it might not be cut up into pieces. And that outer garment, Jesus took off. That beautiful, glorious outer garment. And what's the language that the Apostle Paul uses in Philippians 2, verse 7? In Philippians 2, verse 7, we read but made himself of no reputation. That is to say, when Jesus came from heaven to the earth, he did the exact same thing that he does here in John 13. He laid aside his beautiful garments. That is, he laid aside that glory which was his so that he could appear as a man. So that he could become a man. Now that doesn't mean that when Jesus became a man, he stopped being God. But he did lay aside his his heavenly garments, so to speak. He, He veiled his divine glory so that he might take upon himself the form of a man. He made himself of no reputation. 
So Jesus' act of taking off his garments can be compared to his act of descending down to earth in his incarnation. In the third step of Jesus' foot washing, we read in John 13 verse 4 that Jesus laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And again, you remember from last week, children, what that looked like. Jesus took a towel and wrapped it around his waist like a belt so that he looked exactly like a Gentile slave or just like an Egyptian slave would look. He dressed himself in the garb of a servant. And you go back to Philippians 2 verse 7. What's the language that Paul uses there? In Philippians 2 verse 7 we read, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus' act of girding himself with a towel and taking on the form of a servant can be compared to Jesus' act of taking on our human flesh and blood. Because that's exactly when Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant, when he became a man. So you see the parallel between John 13 and Philippians 2. In the fourth step of Jesus' foot washing, what does Jesus do? We read in John 13 verse 5, After that... He poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. He first takes upon himself the form of a servant and then he gets down on his knees and he goes to work, carrying out the work, the role of a servant, washing his disciples' feet. And in Philippians 2 verse 8, how does the Apostle Paul put it? Paul writes, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Throughout his earthly life, Jesus went to work as that servant, obeying the will of of his God, even to the point of washing away the sin of his people through his death on the cross. That's what we looked at a little bit last week. Washing the disciples' feet can be compared to Jesus' lifelong activity of laying down his life for his people. And then finally, in the fifth step of Jesus' act of foot washing, of washing his disciples' feet, what did Jesus do? We read in John 13, verse 12, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again. After Jesus finishes the work of a servant, he gets back up off his knees, he puts off that garb of a slave, he puts on his normal clothes once again, and he takes his place once again at the head of the table. And what does Paul say in Philippians 2 verse 9? Paul writes, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Jesus, after he does the work of a lowly servant, serving God even unto the point of dying on the cross, he then rises from the dead, he ascends back into heaven, he ascends into heaven and takes his seat on the throne of God. Of glory. And congregation, what's the point of all of this? The point again is this what Jesus did in this act of washing his disciples' feet is a small reflection, a small dramatization, you might say, of Jesus' entire earthly ministry as the servant of God and the servant of his people. It's a small reflection of who Jesus is, where he came from, what he came to do, and where he is going. And the point of drawing this comparison between John 13 and Philippians 2 is so that we might see that Jesus didn't just spend a few minutes here in the upper room on his knees washing his disciples' feet. 
But rather, we need to see through this comparison that Jesus' entire life was a life spent on his knees, wearing the garb of a slave, serving his people. For all 33 years of his earthly life, Jesus was looking like an Egyptian slave. For all 33 years of his earthly life, Jesus was on his knees. He spent his entire earthly life on his knees, bent over, washing, washing, washing the dirty feet of sinners, washing your dirty feet and mine. In the whole of Jesus' life, in all his teaching, in all his miracles, and especially in his work on the cross, this is all that he was doing. Serving as our servant every single second. That fourth step of comparison between John 13 and Philippians 2. That fourth step is Jesus' entire life doing the work of a servant. And maybe to emphasize the point, congregation, that's all he did. That's what his entire life was consumed with. He spent his entire life on his knees, as the office bearer of his church, washing, washing, living the life of a servant. That's what his entire life was spent with, living in self-denial, humiliation, meekness, and gentleness, not doing his own will, but serving others, losing his life in this work of washing. And congregation, when you look at it, you need to ask this question too. How did he do it? Did Jesus do it just in the way of going through the motions? Or I can put it this way. Did he do it because, well, his disciples were so worthy of it? Here in this upper room, as his disciples are bickering over who is the greatest, was any of them worthy to have their feet washed by the master? No. In their pride and self-conceit, were any of them worthy to have his Lord stoop down on his knees to wash their feet? No. Congregation, what is so astounding about this event is that Jesus even knew what these disciples were going to do very soon after this event. He warns Peter this self-same night, Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crow. Figuratively, Peter is going to pierce a dagger through the heart of Jesus. Jesus knows that. He knows that all his disciples are going to flee from him. They will all be offended of him. And it will wound him to to the core. If anyone could have hurt feelings over how others have treated him, it was Jesus after how his disciples treated him this very night. And even Judas Iscariot. Jesus knows that Judas Iscariot has already agreed to betray him. And even those feet of Judas Iscariot, Jesus stoops down to wash them. And still more, Jesus even knows what lies in store for him in the next few hours and the suffering and humiliation he will presently endure. Point is, if there was any time that Jesus could be excused for thinking first about himself before his disciples... It would be just this time where he is anticipating his imminent death on the cross. If anyone could have been justified saying, I'm sick of you. I know all your problems and I'm just sick of you. It would have been Jesus right here. 
And yet what is on Jesus' mind right at this time? What is on his mind is this. How can I serve my disciples? He is thinking about his own disciples' dirty feet even before his own suffering on the cross. How did Jesus serve his disciples? When he served them, he served us all his life long. And he served them out of a true love and concern. And we'll we'll leave Judas Iscariot out of this discussion for the moment, but let's see this. Jesus washed his disciples' feet because he loved them. Because he loved them. Notice when Jesus gets up from the foot washing and he takes his place at the head of the table. What does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? Does he rebuke his disciples and say, well, that's what you should have done. It's a shame that I should have had to do this for you. Not at all. But in love and tenderness, he says at the end of verse 12, do you understand? Do you understand what I have done for you? He says, I did this to you in love. And I did this as one who is sensitive to your needs. And I did this as an act of humble service. And now here's the point. Here's the point of everything we've said so far. What does Jesus say to his disciples? And what does Jesus say to us this afternoon? He says to us this afternoon... Do you understand? Do you understand what I have done for you? I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. This is our example, beloved. This is our perfect example. Office bearers. This is your example. Men in the church, if you want, if you desire the office of an office in the church, a special office, this is your example. This is your preparation. Lifelong service, loving service, self-denying service, even humiliating service for one another. Jesus says, even as I have done to you, so do ye. To one another. That's Jesus' perfect example. His whole life long as a servant. And that's our lowly calling. Because the servant is not greater than the master. So what is our calling? Well, I think there's two parts to the answer. Maybe even three parts. First, our calling is this. To get on our knees. That's what Jesus did. And that's our calling. To get on our knees. And children, let me ask you this. When you get on your knees, what happens? Adults, I can ask you the same thing. When you get on your knees, what happens? Well, what happens is this. Suddenly, you're the one looking up at everyone else. Suddenly, that becomes your whole perspective. Everyone is higher than you, and you're not looking down on them, but you are looking up to them. And that was the posture of Jesus as he washed his disciples' feet. By going down on his knees, he was putting himself lower than his disciples. And by his posture, he was saying that their needs and their comforts are more important than his needs and his comforts. He was there for them, not the other way around. 
And that's the attitude we need. We don't literally need to get on our knees, but the calling we have is to have this attitude that we put ourselves under others and we exalt others above ourselves. That's what humility is. That's exactly the context in Philippians 2. That's what Paul's talking about where he says in verse 3, let nothing be done through strife. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And we esteem others better than ourselves by taking that posture of being on our knees. We look up to them in the sense that whatever we have, whatever gifts we have, should not be used for us, but used for them. When I am on my knees, everyone else is higher than me. So I honor them and bow down before them. Children, isn't that exactly what citizens do before a great king? They immediately get on their knees and they bow their heads. And why do they bow? Well, they bow to show that they are humble and that the king is greater than they are. And that's the kind of attitude we must have, not just towards Jesus, but towards each other. As soon as you see your brother in church, you should take a knee and bow. As soon as you see your sister in church, you should take a knee and bow. That should be the attitude. I'm the least of all saints. That should be our attitude in the home, certainly. We honor each other by judging each other to be better than ourselves, by caring for others when we could so easily be absorbed in our own lives. To use the words of one commentator that I read, we should have this attitude, that we would, quote, gladly suffer irritation and disappointment rather than do anything that would harm the body of believers, end quote. Isn't that exactly what Jesus experienced when he dealt so tenderly and meekly with his disciples in this event? He would rather stoop so low as to wash the disciples' feet than have them eat this last Passover with dirty feet. He suffered irritation and disappointment rather than have his church suffer or lack. And we honor each other and we get on our knees for each other for the same reason Jesus did it. Because of love. Because we love Jesus and we love his people. And because God's children, God's church is precious in our eyes. Now that's hard because what is our default attitude? Our default attitude is this. To compare, to be competitive, to to be jealous, to put others down and assert ourselves. Isn't that exactly how Jesus' esteemed disciples were acting They weren't jostling over who was the least of the disciples. They were jostling over who was the greatest. I can imagine these disciples of Jesus were rather competitive people. And I can imagine that within each one of us, there's a rather competitive spirit as well, in one way or another. And we are competitive, not just in the sense that we want to be the best that we can be, but but even in the sense that, that we want to beat others, be on top, and be the best. That competitive spirit comes out in so many ways. Brothers and sisters fighting with each other because one of them simply can't stand losing to the other in a game. Or husbands and wives being competitive with each other. Fighting with each other until one finally wins and forces the other to bow down in defeat. And why? Because of pride. Because our love of self is greater than our love for our brother or sister. And because in our hearts... We say, 
I actually am better than that person, right? And if I should bow down to that person, well, that would actually be saying that that person is better than me. And I can't do that because in my heart, I still believe that I'm better than that person. That's why none of the disciples were willing to wash each other's feet. And Jesus is saying the proper posture for the child of God is being on his knees, putting himself under others. That's especially true for those in authority, for the disciples. So first our calling is to get down on our knees. And we're going to be staying on our knees for the rest of our lives. Just like Jesus was on his knees his entire life, washing, washing, washing. But then second, what is our calling? Our calling is this. That we give ourselves for the profit and good of others. So that not only do we get on our knees and we have the right perspective and the right posture, but then that we actually go to work, washing feet, using our gifts and abilities for the spiritual profit of others, reflecting the attitude of our hearts. After all, the servant is not greater than his master. If, If Jesus spent his entire life serving you then certainly my life would not be spent in vain if I spent my entire life serving you also. That's how my Lord spent his life. Why shouldn't I spend my life that same way? That's the attitude we have with each other in the home and in the church. These are the people that Jesus spent his entire life serving. Then certainly I can can spend my entire life serving them also. Well, what does this look like? Well, we know that using our gifts and abilities for the happiness and service of others comes in many different forms. Maybe one gift that we all have is simply the gift of time and the gift of listening and speaking to each other. Not gossiping, but caring for each other. Taking the time after church, during the week, to get to know each other so that we might know how to serve each other. That's what I'm interested in. I need to be served by the gifts of others, and others need to be served by the gifts God has given me. We've been knitted together as members of one body. This is where God has put us. And so we, we work with that attitude. I will tell you, beloved, reflecting on this past week, it was deeply edifying for me to go to adult Bible study this past year. It was truly encouraging. And I was thinking about that, thinking about this sermon. I was served. Maybe part of the reason was because we were studying First Peter and studying Scripture is always good. But I was truly served by the time that other people took out of their schedules to come to Bible study and study God's Word. I know not everyone can go. But, but you experience that when you are in that kind of a group. Even if you don't say anything, your presence there served my spiritual good and the good of my wife. I was served at Bible study. One of the greatest gifts we have is our time. But then there are other gifts we have. We we help each other. We encourage each other. As Christians, we can work to cover up one another's faults, to, to handle sin in the right way, in a way that honors God and that's going to be good for each other if the Lord gives us the grace to handle it the right way. We strengthen each other's weaknesses. We comfort one another in our sufferings. We pray for one another and with one another. Maybe above all, we have the gift of exercising a forgiving spirit. 
a forgiving spirit towards our spouse, a, a posture that's ready to forgive someone who has wronged us. After, after all, in a sense, isn't that what this entire picture of foot washing is about? According to what Jesus says to Peter, the cleansing of their feet symbolizes the spiritual cleansing of Christians who have fallen into sin and who have gotten their feet dirty. So how can we wash each other's feet? One of the main ways in which we wash each other's feet is by working to restore those who have fallen into sin, dealing with them rightly, and then exercising that spirit that is ready to forgive. This was what Paul speaks about in Galatians 6 verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. We wash each other's feet in the sense of being an instrument in God's hand to sanctify and purify one another. We help each other as we all struggle together against sin. That's especially what our calling is, to help each other spiritually. Well, what is our calling? Perhaps a third thing that we should notice about this passage is what Jesus says at the end of verse 16. In verse 16, we read, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. And now this, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. What we need to recognize from that language is this. This is exactly part of the reason God has called us into his church and united us to the body of believers. This is exactly part of the reason he has made us his disciple. Because he's sending us. He's now sending us to serve him in this capacity, using our gifts for the good of one another. This is why he has given us the gifts that we have. And what do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus humbling himself so low as to wash even the feet of Judas Iscariot. And we might be inclined to say, if there was anyone who truly wasn't worthy of having his feet washed by Jesus, it was Judas Iscariot. And yet, what was Jesus' attitude? His attitude was this. I am one who is sent. I am one who has been sent by the Father even to endure such a path of humiliation so lowly that I'm even called by God to physically wash the feet of Judas Iscariot, the one who has already agreed to betray me. And that's the example Jesus gives us. His disciples will think on these things after. I have given you an example. That's the example Jesus gives us. Maybe we're tempted to say, I'm not really a big fan of that person in church. Maybe that person just gets under my skin. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I have given you an example. And maybe we're inclined to respond, do I really have to humble myself that far? Really, master? And then Jesus says again, the servant is not greater than his Lord. But then finally, notice where Jesus ends. Where does Jesus end? Notice verse 17. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. This is where we will find our happiness, beloved. 
As strange as it may seem, this is where we will find our happiness. When we humble ourselves before each other, do what's right, and wash each other's feet. The practice of humility imparts happiness. That's really what Jesus is saying. The exercise of humility is its own reward. Exactly because the practice of humility is what satisfies the new man in me. I know it's right. I know I'm a disciple. I know I'm a servant. I know this is my position. This is what the new man loves. It's good for the soul to exercise humility. Because this is my proper exercise, and I know it. All of my salvation is of grace. I know the gospel of a a sovereign, unconditional grace. All we have is a gift. And our only response then is, yes, Lord, how shall I use it for the Lord? If you know that Jesus is your Lord and Master, and that He is willing to stoop so low, even to the death of the cross, to minister to your needs. And if you know, having seen Jesus, if you know that you are not greater than Jesus, if you know these things, happy are ye, blessed are ye, if ye do them. Congregation, I cannot help but ask the question, Did Judas Iscariot know these things? Did Judas Iscariot know that he was not greater than Jesus? Oh no. To have Jesus stoop so low as to wash the disciples' sweaty, stinky feet? I can imagine, if I may, Judas couldn't tolerate it. He refused to do it himself. He he remained proud. This was exactly Judas' problem. Judas was greater than his master, or so he thought. But the question we can follow up with is this. Was he happy? Was he happy? Oh, you know what happened. Before this day is even finished, Judas is so miserable, he goes out and hangs himself. What does Jesus say in verse 16? Verily, verily. And what that means, children, when you read that in Scripture is this. Listen up and pay attention. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Etch it upon my heart, Lord. I say unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, We thank Thee for these glimpses into Jesus. And we thank Thee for how it so directly applies to us. Give us the heart of Jesus. 
Cause us to see the beauty of it, to be jealous over such a heart. Work it within us more and more. That we might truly experience what happiness is. In the moment, Lord, thou knowest, it is difficult. Even so that Jesus sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. But he certainly is happy enthroned at thy right hand. And he knew the joy that was set before him. Give us that knowledge, Lord, too. Give us that happiness. Bless this preaching to our hearts and to our lives and shape us by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.